Hello there, welcome back. It's great to have your company again. My name is James Paniki. I'm MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor, and this is the MLEX Weekly Podcast, covering the top regulatory stories from around the world with the assistance of our team of reporters. And we have so much to get through this week. In just under 10 minutes from now, we'll be joined by Ana Paula Candil, one of the reporters working on our Brazilian coverage, and she'll be bringing us a fascinating institutional story involving CAJ, that's the country's competition regulator. Ana Paula has been looking into a split not just among CAJ's different sections, but also within the agency's in-house court. It's a fascinating story of policy, politics and personalities. First up, though, to the US, where listeners would no doubt be familiar with Facebook's e-commerce service, better known as Marketplace. If you want to sell a bike, a blender or even a Persian rug, that's the platform that people around the world and in your neighbourhood are increasingly turning to. But for businesses in the US, there's a concern. They're afraid that Facebook's marketplace is being used to sell counterfeit goods. And now calls are increasing for the Office of the US Trade Representative, or USTR, to include Facebook in the notorious markets list. What does that mean exactly? Well, our Washington DC-based trade reporter Kat Lucero has been following the story and she joins us now. Uh, so, Kat, let's start from that point. What is the annual Notorious Markets list released by the USTR? The USTR is uh, a report that cites examples of markets all over the world where uh, there's rampant, where rampant piracy, counterfeiting have been reported. Um, and the reason why USTR is doing this report, um, it's because it, it's considered a restriction on U.S. commerce and therefore a trade barrier. Uh, USTR has been doing this, uh, meaning um, compiling this report since uh, 2011, and it collects input from from the public, including business organizations and individual business themselves. Sure. And so why is USTR now focusing on e-commerce sites? So the agency highlighted online markets for the first time in last year's report, which was released um, in January. And the in that, that report was compiled um, when President Donald Trump was still in office. And that was part of, um, you know, a broader initiative to crackdown on counterfeits, uh, counterfeit products uh, sold online and make more and make the platforms more accountable to, you know, that kind of activity. And USDR, even under this new leadership, um, still recognizes the, uh, the concern of um, counterfeit products and, you know, fake goods sold online. So that's why the agency is continuing to focus on this area. Mm. Now, Facebook obviously is the focus of your piece of analysis that you wrote for us, and it does have a policy against counterfeit uh, products and those who sell them, and also a policy to protect intellectual property. Tell me something about that. So Facebook, to go back to why Facebook has these policies in place, um, it's because Facebook has grown in is grown into several services. Um, you know, one they have the Facebook Marketplace that started in 2016. It started out in four countries like the U.S. and Australia, um, and now it's in a business of advertising. And by extension, um, advertising on Instagram, which uh, the company bought a few years ago. 
And so those services are now basically all over the world, and uh, they put up a lot of um, information on their commitment to protect intellectual property. And they've even created all these tools to help uh, intellectual property rights holders report uh, violations. Um, You know, I reached out to Facebook, and they put, and the spokesperson there pointed to several tools that they have and measures that they're taking, including using machine learning to uh, to detect um, posts or sites or profiles that could be touting counterfeit products. Now, this takes us to what business groups are calling for, which is to include Facebook and its affiliated platforms, Instagram and WhatsApp uh, in this list. Why do they want to see the platform included? Businesses believe that Facebook is not doing enough based on their own monitoring. Um, For example, the American Apparel and Footwear Association, uh, for for the the last report, they requested that Facebook be included because based on their own reviews from their members, the volume of counterfeits available across Facebook and Instagram has grown. And for this in the past year, they noticed that it still continues to grow. For example, um, you know, in my story, there was uh, one association member that reported approximately 3,000 notices came up every month. And whether those notices was, uh, was a seller group, pages, market, marketplace listings, ads, there was still all that happening despite the measures and tools that Facebook has put in place. And also, um, there was another organization that I mentioned um, in my article, the Anti-Counterfeiting Educational Foundation. They focus on, um, on, on fake collectible coins, and they assist law enforcement to crack down on these counterfeits. And they made a point that Counterfeiters who purchase pop-up ads also buy like hundreds of websites, um, website domains, so that when Facebook shuts one site down, a new one comes up. And the ads, the multiple ads they buy for Facebook, it's it's revenue for for Facebook, and you know they reported billions of dollars in ad revenue um, just this year, and so Facebook is benefiting from from this. And as we know, um, earlier this year, Facebook reported billions of dollars in ad revenue. Um, and so in a way, this you know organizations are saying Facebook does have a responsibility to crack down on, on, on these intellectual property violations. Sure. And what happens when a company or a country are included in the notorious markets list? I mean, what should Facebook expect if it were to be included? So it, this the report is just a way for foreign governments and the private sector like Facebook to take action to reduce these illicit activities. So for example, in the last report, Amazon's foreign domain names was included in the list of online marketplaces that facilitated um, you know, counterfeiting and piracy, and that got a lot of attention. So it's a way for you know companies themselves to to kind of look at their own measures and tools to see if they're doing enough um, to reduce this type of activity. Kat, thank you for following this with uh, such uh, interest, and thank you so much for speaking to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, James.
Kat Lucero, an MLEX US trade reporter based in Washington, D.C., and her analysis of this issue teases out some uh, truly fascinating aspects of this story, and it's well worth a read. Luckily, it's now online, and our website is mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X, marketinsight.com. Just head for the News Hub tab for the very best of MLEX's reporting and analysis. And subscribers, of course, have access to the full portfolio of reporting on the Notorious Markets list, with almost 10 years' worth of stories there. This is MLEX's weekly podcast. James Paniki with you, and thank you for making it this far. And don't forget that you can subscribe to MLEX Podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. Now, our readers and listeners are no strangers to CARJ, one of the most significant regulators of South America. And as you'll know, the Brazilian antitrust watchdog is structured in an unusual way. It has an investigative arm, which is the superintendency, and a judicial arm, which hears cases and can accept or reject remedies or immunity deals put forward by the superintendency. Well, not all is well in the tribunal at the moment. In particular, there's friction between some of its members and the president of CAGE, Alexander Cordero. That would be neither here nor there, of course, were it not for the fact that these internal divisions could have real-world consequences for businesses appearing before the tribunal. Ana Paula Candil is an MLEX senior correspondent for Latin America, and she joins me now. So, uh, Ana Paula, give me the context of this clash. So, Cádiz Tribunal councillors have been questioning the legitimacy of certain decisions made by the presidency. That happened in a few cases after Alexandre Cordeiro assumed the presidency in July, but it actually started during Alexandre Barreto's presidency, weeks before he left the agency with the end of his term. So the first heated debate was in June when Barreto asked the superintendents for a new review of the Nestlé Garoto chocolate merger following a controversial court decision. And he didn't brought the matter for voting by other tribunal members. Then we have another example where this happened, which was in September. Um, when Cordero decided to cancel a ruling session and he didn't ask anyone about that. He argued that there was only one case in the agenda for a ruling and it was actually an appeal in a cartel case. So it, it wasn't even a time-sensitive case and it wouldn't be efficient to open a ruling session to you know, decide only a, a, a specific case. But councillors got very annoyed about these decisions and that's when they exposed that there's been a lack of internal dialogue between them and the presidency. The tribunal is very heterogeneous right now. You have three councillors more aligned and two others issuing completely independent decisions. And you have the president who doesn't fit in any of this. We also have political differences and a dispute for key positions at the agency. Not only Cordero wants to be the president, not only Barreto wants to be the superintendent of CAGI. Anyways, this must have an impact on the agency rulings and on the performance of certain CAGI units. Now, so you're painting a picture of great divisions within the tribunal. Now, given that the tribunal 
has to ratify uh, several decisions made by the other agency uh, units, for example, the the superintendents, and we'll talk about the superintendents a bit later, but how might these ongoing debates affect the agency rulings and its overall performance? Yeah, so the superintendents is the agency's uh, investigative body. It's where all investigations start, uh, be them cartels or merger. Um, If that particular unit isn't aligned with the tribunal, which later will have to approve its decisions, and, and, you know, we are talking about an unpredictable tribunal where we don't know which side it will take, whether it will want to review jurisprudence over a matter that was already pacified within the agency. So we start not to know what to expect from CAD decisions. This obviously generates legal uncertainty. The biggest issue that I see is with the settlement agreements. Tribunal members have debated a lot about what is the proper cartel fine calculation method, The agency had a traditional method of calculating fines until earlier this year. A slim majority of the tribunal decided to start voting for fining companies based on how much they profited with the cartel. This slim majority hasn't necessarily agreed on a specific method of calculation, though. And negotiations of settlement agreements usually start at the superintendents and are approved by the tribunal later. And so what the superintendent is supposed to do with the settlement payments? Should it use the traditional method or the alternative one? What if the superintendent negotiates an accord that later is going to be rejected by most tribunal members? So basically, you start to discourage companies and individuals from seeking the agency to report cartels. Okay, so we're talking about a lack of predictability over cartel fine calculations. These may Um, hinder negotiations of settlement agreements and uh, even uh, discourage cartelists from cooperating with investigators. But what about merger remedy negotiations? Will they also be affected by the fact that the tribunal is, uh, is somewhat divided at the moment? The superintendent is also responsible for starting remedy negotiations with companies involved in complex deals. Um, mostly those that involve high concentrations. And because of that, it is important that the tribunal flag which types of remedies better satisfy them so that the merger review process continues to be clear, quick and effective. This is a particularly difficult task um, when we are talking about a fragmented tribunal. Okay, now as for what this means for those companies that find themselves facing the tribunal, could All of these uh, heated debates going on in the background, the decisions made by slim majorities, could all of these work perhaps to the strategic advantage of uh, companies? Could they stand to benefit from these divisions? It could benefit companies at some point. The fact that the legitimacy of the CADIS president's singular decisions have been questioned by tribunal councillors could give litigants a higher chance to succeed in their appeals, maybe against agency decisions. But obviously that is depends on the case. Also, if the agency is imposing cartel fines using alternative methods that do not necessarily have a standard, and if those decisions are made by a slim majority, which means it's not an absolute majority, then we could also see more companies trying to reduce their fines in court or even trying to overturn the decision itself. Okay, now we have 
talked on other occasions about how the tribunal plays a big role in the agency's decisions and how other agency units depend on uh, clear guidance from the tribunal to to in order to uh, perform effectively. Uh, so what can we expect for the near future given the the uh, the current and future vacant positions at the agency? It is really hard to tell, but let's do a quick overview of the situation. So former councillor Mauricio Oscar Bandeira Maia left the agency in July and his post hasn't yet been filled. Then you have councillor Paula Azevedo's term ending in February. Um, that means we will have soon two empty seats in the tribunal. We already have one, but in February, you might have two se- empty seats in the tribunal. Also, Kaji has operated with an acting superintendent since June. Barreto was appointed by President Jair Bolsonaro as superintendent, but the Senate hasn't yet voted on his nomination. Um, the same happens with Councillor Maya's position. Bolsonaro appointed someone whose name hasn't yet been approved by the Senate. The position of Kaji's legal team has been vacant since October 15, and no appointment to replace him has been made. And finally, there are some rumors that Cordero is being considered for positions outside the agency with the Superior Court of Justice and the Supreme Court. So if that's the case, he may not even complete his term as Kaji president meaning someone will have to step into the fray. All right, so lots of uncertainty, lots of uh, lots of questions still unanswered there. But Ana Paula, it's always great to talk about institutional intrigue. So thank you so much for uh, paying such uh, close attention to it. Let's talk again very soon. Thank you, James. Ana Paula Candil, an MLEX senior correspondent for South America, and she was speaking to us from our offices in Sao Paulo. And Ana Paula's analysis of these KJ clashes are online and ready for you to peruse. MLEXMarketInsight.com. That's MLEXMarketInsight.com. And it's a fun read, so don't hesitate to check it out. Now, sadly, we have to wind things up for today. But rest assured that we'll be back in your podcast feed next Friday at more or less the same time. I hope you can join me then. From me, James Paniki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company today. I'll see you again very soon. Bye for now.